Volume Two, Chapter Ten of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Tenth. Far as the eye could reach, no tree was seen. Earth, clad in russet, scorned the lively green. No birds except as birds of passage flew. No bee was heard to hum, no dove to coo. No streams, as amber smooth, as amber clear, were seen to glide, or heard to warble here. Prophecy of Famine It was in the bracing atmosphere of a harvest morning that I met by appointment fair service with the horses at the door of Mr. Jarvie's house, which was but little space distant from Mrs. Flyter's hotel. The first matter which caught my attention was, that whatever were the deficiencies of the pony which Mr. Fairservice's legal adviser, Clark Toothhope, generously bestowed upon him in exchange for Thorncliffe's mare, he had contrived to part with it, and procure in its stead an animal with so curious and complete a lameness that it seemed only to make use of three legs for the purpose of progression, while the fourth appeared as if meant to be flourished in the air by way of accompaniment. "'What do you mean by bringing such a creature as that here, sir? And where is the pony you rode to Glasgow upon?' were my very natural and impatient inquiries. "'I sailed it, sir. It was a slink beast, and what I eaten its hair off, standing at lucky flight as at a livery.' and I bought this on your honour's account. It's a grand bargain, cost but a pound sterling the foot. That's for are the gather. The stringhold will gae off when it's gain a mile. It's a well-kind gang. They call it Supple Tam. On my soul, sir, said I, you will never rest until my supple jack and your shoulders become acquainted, if you do not go instantly and procure the other brute. You shall pay the penalty of your ingenuity. Andrew, notwithstanding my threats, continued to battle the point. As he said, it would cost him a guinea of rue bargain to the man who had bought his pony, before he could get it back again. Like a true Englishman, though sensible, I was duped by the rascal. I was about to pay his exaction, rather than lose time, when forth sallied Mr. Jarvie cloaked, mantled, hooded and booted, as if for a Siberian winter. While two apprentices, under the immediate direction of Matty, led forth the decent ambling steed which had the honour on such occasions to support the person of the Glasgow magistrate. Ere he clombered to the saddle, an expression more descriptive of the Bailey's mode of mounting than that of the knight's errant to whom Spencer applies it, he inquired the cause of the dispute betwixt my servant and me. Having learned the nature of honest Andrew's manoeuvre, he instantly cut short all debate by pronouncing that a fair service did not forthwith return the three-legged palfrey and produce the more useful quadruped which he had discarded, he would send him to prison and immerse him in half his wages. Mr. Osbaldstone, said he, contracted for the service of both your horse and ye. Ta brutes at ants, ye unconscionable rascal. But I'll look weel after ye during this journey. 
"'It will be nonsense finding me,' said Andrew doubtily. "'That hasna a grey groat to pay a fine way. "'It's ill-taking the breeks of a healand man.' "'If ye hae nae paris to fine, ye have flesh to pine,' replied the bailie, "'and I will look weel till ye get in your deserts to tae away o' the tither.' To the commands of Mr. Jarvie, therefore, Andrew was compelled to submit only muttering between his teeth, Oh, a money masters, oh, a money masters, as the parrock said to the harrow, when every tooth gave her a tig. Apparently he found no difficulty in getting rid of supple Tam, and recovering possession of his former Bucephalus, for he accomplished the exchange without being many minutes absent, nor did I hear further of his having paid any smart money for breach of bargain, we now set forward, but had not reached the top of the street in which Mr. Jarvie dwelt, when a loud hallooing and breathless call of, Stop! Stop! was heard behind us. We stopped accordingly, and were overtaken by Mr. Jarvie's two lads, who bore two parting tokens of Matty's care for her master. The first was conveyed in the form of a voluminous silk handkerchief, like the mainsail of one of his own West Indiamen which Mrs. Matty particularly desired he would put about his neck, and which, thus entreated, he added to his other integuments. The second youngster brought only a verbal charge. I thought I saw the rogue disposed to laugh as he delivered it on the part of the housekeeper, that her master would take care of the waters. Poh, poh, silly hussy, answered Mr. Jarvie, but added, turning to me, it shows a kind heart, though. It shows a kind heart and say young a queen. Matty's a careful lass. So speaking, he pricked the sides of his palfrey, and we left the town without further interruption. While we paced easily forward, by a road which conducted us north-eastward from the town, I had an opportunity to estimate and admire the good qualities of my new friend. Although, like my father, he considered commercial transactions the most important objects of human life, he was not wedded to them so as to undervalue more general knowledge. On the contrary, with much oddity and vulgarity of manner, with a vanity which he made much more ridiculous by disguising it now and then under a thin veil of humility, and devoid as he was of all the advantages of a learned education, Mr. Jarvie's conversation showed tokens of a shrewd, observing, liberal, and, to the extent of its opportunities, a well-improved mind. He was a good local antiquary, and entertained me as we passed along with an account of remarkable events which had formerly taken place in the scenes through which we passed. And, as he was well acquainted with the ancient history of his district, he saw with the prospective eye of an enlightened patriot the buds of many of those future advantages which have only blossomed and ripened within these few years. I remarked also, and with great pleasure, that although a keen Scotchman, and abundantly zealous for the honour of his country, he was disposed to think liberally of the sister kingdom. When Andrew Fairservice, whom, by the way, the bailey could not abide, chose to impute the accident of one of the horses casting his shoe to the deteriorating influence of the union, he incurred a severe rebuke for Mr. Jarvie. "'Wisht, sir, wisht! It's ill-scraped tongues like yours, 
that make mischief atween neighbourhoods and nations. There's nothing so good on this side of time, but it might have been better, and that may be said of the Union, nane were keener against it than the Glasgow folk, with their rabblings and their risings and their mobs, as they call them nowadays. But it's an ill wind blows nobody good. Let ilka ane reese the fort as they find it. I say let Glasgow flourish, whilk is judiciously and elegantly putting around the town's arms by way of byword. No, since St. Mongo catched herrings in the Clyde, what was ever like the garas flourish, like the sugar and tobacco trade? Will anybody tell me that, and grumble at the treaty that opened us a road west awa yonder? Andrew Fairservice was far from acquiescing in these arguments of expedience, and even ventured to enter a grumbling protest, that it was an own core change to have Scotland's laws made in England, and that, for his share, he would not have all the herring barrels in Glasgow, and all the tobacco cast to boot. he given up the writing of the Scots Parliament, or sent away our crown, and our sword, and our sceptre, and Mons Meg, to be kept by the English puddings in the Tower of London. What would Sir William Wallace, or old Davy Lindsay, he said to the Union, or them that made it? The road which we travelled, while diverting the way with these discussions, had become wild and open, as soon as we had left Glasgow a mile or two behind us, and was growing more dreary as we advanced. Huge continuous heaths spread before, behind, and around us, in hopeless barrenness, now level and interspersed with swamps, green with treacherous verdure, or sable with turf or, as they call them in Scotland, peat bogs, and now swelling into huge heavy ascents which wanted the dignity and form of hills, while they were still more toilsome to the passenger. There were neither trees nor bushes to relieve the eye from the russet livery of absolute sterility. The very heath was of that stinted, imperfect kind which has little or no flower, and affords the coarsest and meanest covering, which, as far as my experience enables me to judge, Mother Earth is ever arrayed in. Living thing we saw none, except occasionally a few straggling sheep of a strange diversity of colours, as black, bluish, and orange. The sable hue predominated, however, in their faces and legs. The very birds seemed to shun these wastes, and no wonder, since they had an easy method of escaping from them. At least I only heard the monotonous and plaintful cries of the lapwing and curlew, which my companions denominated the pea-sweep and fawp. At dinner, however, which we took about noon at a most miserable alehouse, we had the good fortune to find that these tiresome screamers of the morass were not the only inhabitants of the moors. The good wife told us that the good man had been at the heel, and well for us that he had been so, for we enjoyed the product of a chasse in the shape of some broiled moor game, a dish which gallantly eked out the ewe milk cheese, dried salmon and oaten bread, being all besides that the house afforded. Some very indifferent tuppenny ale, and a glass of excellent brandy, crowned our repast, and, as our horses had in the meantime discussed their corn, 
we resumed our journey with renovated vigour i had need of all the spirits a good dinner could give to resist the dejection which crept insensibly on my mind when i combined the strange uncertainty of my errand with the disconsolate aspect of the country through which it was leading me our road continued to be if possible more waste and wild than we had travelled in the forenoon the few miserable hovels that showed some marks of human habitation were now of still rarer occurrence and at length as we began to ascend an uninterrupted swell of the moorland they totally disappeared the only exercise which my imagination received was when some particular turn of the road gave us a partial view to the left of a large assemblage of dark blue mountains stretching to the north and north-west which promised to include within their recesses a country as wild perhaps but certainly differing greatly in point of interest from that which we now travelled the peaks of this screen of mountains were as wildly varied and distinguished as the hills which we had seen on the right were tame and lumpish and while i gazed on this alpine region i felt a longing to explore its recesses though accompanied with toil and danger similar to that which a sailor feels when he wishes for the risks and animation of a battle or a gale in exchange for the insupportable monotony of a protracted calm i made various inquiries of my friend mr jarvie respecting the names and positions of these remarkable mountains but it was a subject on which he had no information or did not choose to be communicative they're the heel and hills the heel and hills you'll see and hear a new about them before you see glasgow cross again i don't look at them i never see them but they gar me grey it's not for fear nor for fear but just for grief for the poor blinded half-starved creatures that inhabit them but say nae mar about it it's ill speaking of healand men say near the line i ha kenned mony an honest man wouldna have ventured this length without he had made his last will and testament Marty had ill will to see me set awa on this raid and grat away the silly torpy but it's nae more fairly to see a woman greet than to see a goose gang better fit i next attempted to lead the discourse on the character and history of the person whom we were going to visit but on this topic mr jarvie was totally inaccessible owing perhaps in part to the attendance of mr andrew fairservice who chose to keep so close in our rear that his ears could not fail to catch every word which was spoken while his tongue assumed the freedom of mingling in our conversation as often as he saw an opportunity for this he occasionally incurred mr jarvie's reproof keep it back sir as best set ye said the bailie as andrew pressed forward to catch the answer to some question i had asked about campbell he would fain ride the fore-horse and he was too that child's eye for being out of the cheese fat he was moulded in no as for your questions mr osbaldistone knew that child's out of earshot i'll just tell ye it's free to ye to spear and it's free to me to answer och no good i cannot say muckle or rob poor child ill i will not say o him for for be that he's my cousin we're coming near his ain country and there may be ain of his gillies ain't every whin bush for what i ken 
and if he'll be guided by my advice, the less ye speak about him, or where we are going, or what we are going to do, we'll be the mere likely to speed us in our errand, for it's like we may fa in with some of his unfriends. There are even over money o' them about, and his bonnet sits even on his brow yet, for all that. But I doubt there'll be upsides with Robert the last ere day or late day the fox's hide finds a the flaying knife. I will certainly, I replied, be entirely guided by your experience. Right, Mr. Osbaldstone, right. But I won't speak to this gobbling skite too, for barons and fools speak at the cross what they hear at the Ingleside. Do you hear you, Andrew? What's your name? Fair service. Andrew, who at the last rebuff had fallen a good way behind, did not choose to acknowledge the summons. Andrew, you scoundrel, repeated Mr. Jarvie. Here, sir, here. Here's for the dog, said Andrew, coming up sulkily. I'll give ye dog's wages, ye rascal, if ye dinna attend to what I say to ye. We are going into the healings a bit. I judged us, muckle, said Andrew. Hold your peace, ye knave, and hear what I have to say till ye. We are going a bit into the healings. You told me say already, replied the incorrigible Andrew. I'll break your head, said the bailie, rising in wrath, if you didn't hold your tongue. A hardened tongue, replied Andrew, makes a slabbered mouth. It was now necessary I should interfere, which I did by commanding Andrew, with an authoritative tone, to be silent at his peril. I am silent, said Andrew. I'll do all your lawful budden without a nay say. My poor mother used aye to tell me. Be it better, be it worse. Be ruled by him that has the Paris. Say ye may e'en speak as lang as ye like. Baith the ten and the tither o' ye for Andrew. Mr. Jarvie took the advantage of his stopping after quoting the above proverb to give him the requisite instructions. New sir, it's as muckle as your life's worth. That would be dear or little silly to be sure. But it is as muckle as all our lives are worth, if ye dinna mind what I say to ye. In this public while we are going to, and where it is like we may hate to stay a night, men are all clans and kindred, Hayland and Lowland, take up their quarters, and whilst there are mere drawn dirks than open Bibles among them, when the Uskabar gets uppermost, see ye neither meddle nor make nor gi nae offence with that clavering tongue o' yours, but keep a calm suff, and let eagle cock fight his ain battle. Muckle needs to tell me that, said Andrew contemptuously, as if I had never seen a healand man before, and ken nae how to manage them. Nae man alive can cootle up Donal better than myself. I bought with them, sold with them, eaten with them, drucken with them. Did ye ever fight with them? said Mr. Jarvie. Na, na, answered Andrew. I took care of that. It would ill ha set me that I'm an artist and half a scholar to my trade, to be fighting among a wheen kilted leans that dinna ken the name of a single herb or flower in braid scats, 
let it be in the latin tongue then said mr jarvie as ye wad keep either your tongue in your mouth or your logs in your head and ye might miss them for as saucy members as they are i charge ye to say no word good or bad that ye can weel get by to onybody that may be in the clachin and ye'll specially understand that ye're ne'er to be bleezing and blasting about your master's name and mine or saying that this is mr bailey nickle jarvie of the south market son of the worthy dean nickle jarvie that a body has heard about and this is mr frank osbaldistone son of the managing partner of the great house of osbaldistone and tresham in the city enich said answered andrew enich said what did ye think i would be speaking about your names for i have many things of mere importance to speak about i trow if they very things of importance that i'm feared for ye blethering goose ye mauna speak anything good or bad that ye can by any possibility help if ye dinna think me fit replied andrew in a huff to speak like either fork give me my wages and my borrowed wages and i shall go back to glasgow there's my sorrow at our parting as the old mare said to the broken cart finding andrew's perverseness again rising to a point which threatened to occasion me inconvenience i was under the necessity of explaining to him that he might return if he thought proper but that in that case i would not pay him a single farthing for his past services the argument at Krumenam, as it has been called by jocular logicians has weight with the greater part of mankind and andrew was in that particular far from affecting any trick of singularity he drew in his horns to use the bailey's phrase on the instant professed no intention whatsoever to disoblige and a resolution to be guided by my commands whatever they might be concord being thus happily restored to our small party we continued to pursue our journey the road which had ascended for six or seven english miles now began to descend for about the same space through a country which neither in fertility nor interest could boast any advantage over that which we had passed already and which afforded no variety unless when some tremendous peak of a highland mountain appeared at a distance we continued however to ride on without pause and even when night fell and overshadowed the desolate wilds which we traversed we were as i understood from mr jarvie still three miles in a bittock distant from the place where we were to spend the night End of volume two chapter ten recording by felicity campbell whanganui new zealand